Welcome to Louisiana Considered. I'm Adam Voss. For many, today brings on the post-carnival blues. Mardi Gras decorations are taken down and king cake slices are no longer stocked on bakery shelves. But for others, particularly those of the Catholic faith, today, Ash Wednesday, means the beginning of Lent. Back in 2015, the Listening Post from WWNO asked New Orleanians about what they were giving up for Lent and how they transitioned from a season of carnival celebrations to a time of religious reflection and sacrifice. Jesse Hardman from the Listening Post began by speaking with Archbishop of New Orleans, Gregory Amond. If you're religious, you might observe the 40 days of Lent, which starts the day after Mardi Gras. Yeah, certainly some of our morning masses downtown, you know, there would be people who are pretty much partied all night, but they still want to come in on Ash Wednesday and to begin the Lenten practice, and I certainly honor and respect them for that. If not, you might just use the weeks after Mardi Gras to dry out your liver and catch your breath. Archbishop Amon says moderation and quiet reflection can be tricky in this city. I think in, in New Orleans, it's more challenging uh, to keep the Lenten practice. You know, we finish Mardi Gras, and then we have St. Patrick's Day parades, <laughs> and then we have um, the St. Joseph's Day parades, and then we have other things that are happening in the French quarters. But Archbishop Amond wasn't the only one with some wisdom for the Lenten season. Here's listening post producer Kate Richardson. This time around, we asked people what they're giving up after carnival season, what they wish they could give up, and what they think the city of New Orleans should give up or try to improve. Here's some audio from our recording devices at Joe W. Brown Rec Center, Delgado Community College, and a visit to the weekly square dance night at First Presbyterian Church on Claiborne. Well, after carnival, I'm going to give up booze for a short period of time. I'm not giving up anything. Drinking Red Bulls and smoking cigarettes. Well, after carnival, carnival, I'm giving up scones every day. I would have to say being lazy. What's something you wish you could give up, but you know you can't? Answer is alcohol. And I wish I could give up eating sweets, but I don't know if I can. Something I wish I could give up, but I can't, it's fast food. And what's something I would wish I wish I could give up, but I know I can't. That man. <laughs> <laughs> I feel like if I can give up my dieting habits or my eating habits and get into exercising, everything will be fine. But I'm scared to exercise and go out in the, in the city of New Orleans, you know, to jog because I'm scared a crime going to take place in front of my eyes or I may be a victim of a crime. I think the city of New Orleans should give up light pollution and just have like one night a month where they turn off all the lights so that we can see the stars. And I guess the city of New Orleans should give up the parades because they're annoying. I think the city of New Orleans should give up racism. The city of New Orleans should give up on violence, just play more music, do more square dances. As usual, we also sent out our questions via text message. Things that people are giving up include fun, dairy, and hangovers. As for what people wish they could give up, we got potato salad, bluebell banana splits, fruit punch big shots, and someone said, I thought about saying bourbon, but that would be a lie, the wanting to give it up part. Hey, Jesse, what are you going to give up? You know, I've got gluten on the mind. You? Well, like a lot of people, I'm going to try to be a little less attached to the Internet. 
to make a commitment that for a period of time during the day um, that we will put away our electronics, our cell phones and texting and, and email, and just be quiet for like 10 minutes. And I think nowadays that, for me, is, is one of the best forms of penance during Lent. Archbishop of New Orleans Gregory Amon says less technology is something he's working on, too. Sometimes when I'm driving, I just say, going from here to there, I'm not going to use my cell phone. I'm going to use it as a time just to be with the Lord. And that's a real sacrifice for us today. That's all for this week. We hope you can follow through on your post-carnival resolutions. Feel free to text us if you need moral support or if you just want to join our project. Text the word HELLO to 504-303-4348. That's HELLO and text that to 504-303-4348. That was Jesse Hardman and Kate Richardson of WWNO's Listening Post. We're listening to Louisiana Considered from WRKF and WWNO. I'm Adam Voss. In late 2022, the Library of Congress announced that the short film titled Mardi Gras Carnival has been added to the National Film Registry. The film, which captures about two minutes of the crew of wrecks rolling through New Orleans in 1898, was the year's oldest inductee. But this film was actually long thought to be lost. That was until Mackenzie Roberts Beasley, an audiovisual researcher and archivist for the Smithsonian Archives of American Art, tracked it down earlier last year in a trail that led her all the way to Europe. She joined us back in December to share more about this film, the piece of history it exposes, and the unlikely journey to recovering it. Today, we hear an encore of that conversation. So Mackenzie, this film was lost. It was thought to be lost for a long time, but there were still rumors swirling around about its existence. So it may not have been a complete surprise that it was found, and you had a clue that it existed or might have existed somewhere. How did you first get involved in this project, and how were you able to track it down? And why did you know that this is film that might exist? Sure. Um, so Will French, who is the historian of the Rex crew, he called me and said, hey, I wondered if you could help me. And he said, I'm looking for a bunch of films of New Orleans, specifically Rex, Mardi Gras, but we don't know if they exist or not. We've had other people try and they've been unable to find them. And there's a reason for that. I mean, statistically, they think 80 to 90 percent of the silent era is lost. It kind of depends on who you ask. Hmm. A lot of people didn't think the films were important, so they didn't keep them. What's interesting is that they've created this database and the database is based on inventory roles of different companies and the films that they produced. And so we know that these films have been made, but we have no idea if they're still around. And that's kind of how he was able to say, I think that these are the titles and these are the films that we're looking for. And granted, not all of the titles are very descriptive, as you can imagine. You kind of take a shot in the dark. Things are pretty generic when they would name them. So these films were listed out and there's a few companies that did them. Um, This one was done by the American Mutoscope, which is an early film production company. So I found the list and they happen to have one at the Eye Museum in the Netherlands. So if you look on the production information, there should be two rolls of film and under the Eye Museum, it just said the film title. So I had no idea if it was one reel, two reels, 
what to do. So I reached out and asked them about it and they said that they need to digitize it, but they'd get back to me when it was done. And that's when I saw it and thought, oh my God, I know what this is. This has to be what they're looking for. This is Rex. So somebody was recording this film in New Orleans in 1898. Why were they there? Why were they recording this? What was the reason? What was the intended audience? So uh, around the time that film came out, this is pretty early on, 1898, they made actuality films. And actuality films were done in New York and all across the United States of what places looked like. And it really was just the idea of a moving image. They didn't really care so much about story, which is why you also have just footage of New York City or San Francisco before the earthquake, things like that. And those were the films that you would see either being projected or you would see them in the Nickelodeons. And this was one of them. So the reason they're recording is, you know, people just liked watching actualities from somewhere else in the world because it's it's a moving image. It's a it's a novel thing. Yeah. And not everybody got to travel. So you might hear of what New Orleans is doing with Mardi Gras and you might hear that you know things are going on on the coast. And um, I remember reading about the World's Fair that was pretty early on and they had footage of different factories from the big city. So people in the rural era may not have been able to see what factories looked like at the time. So that was a, a big reason why they had actualities, which is really cool. Um, people kind of overlook that now. So this hunt for this film brought you to Amsterdam. Why was the film there? And how were you able to get this footage back to the U.S.? So our best guess is that films were distributed all over to watch, but no studio really asked for them back. So this would end up in people's garages or attics or backyard, like kind of wherever they had them, and then ended up in archives. People would have them and keep them and go, hey, I'll donate these. And it happened that one of the American Mutoscope films ended up in the Netherlands. So they just digitized it for me. Um, it's a 1989 film, which means that it's probably on nitrate, and the nitrate is highly flammable. So at no point would I have even asked for it. <laughs> Um, but they were able to digitize it, and I'm guessing they have special equipment for that because there's very few places that can do it. Hmm. So films like this, they're you know temperamental. When archivists keep them, they're kept in these climate-controlled conditions to keep them from breaking down. And you said some of these are found in your garages and attics. What condition was this film in when it was found, and was there a restoration effort? Were you were you lucky? I don't know a whole lot about the film itself, but by looking at the footage, it is well-maintained. You don't see very many scratches, and it doesn't seem to be that there's a lot of warping involved either. We're speaking with Mackenzie Roberts Beasley, audiovisual researcher and archivist with the Smithsonian Archives of American Art. We're speaking about some very old footage of the Crew of Rex parade rolling through New Orleans in 1898, footage that was recently uncovered and inducted into the National Film Registry. So tell us a little bit more about the film itself. What are we seeing when we watch it? Who's in it? What's going on? Yeah, so this was the Rex Parade, and it's going down, oh God, I don't remember the street right now. So I understand the camera that was filming was placed at Gallier Hall and was looking down St. Charles Avenue toward Poydras Street. I ended up actually staying over there in a hotel. Um, it's a little different now, but we were able to figure out which one it was. What's interesting about this footage is you'll notice that Mardi Gras changed. <laughs> there's no beads being thrown. There's no people screaming. There's no, nothing being thrown. And what's another interesting thing to think about is there's no safety really involved. Uh, there's no handrails. There's nothing really holding you on. You're just kind of standing on top of these floats. To me, it's a little scary. <laughs> I wouldn't <laughs> want to do that. But 
that's another thing that's really fascinating. And you're also not seeing any police presence holding people back. Everybody is standing where they're supposed to be and the floats are coming down. There's no barricades like there is nowadays. Um, but the big thing that's happening in this footage that's really neat is the Bouffe Gras. So Bouffe Gras is a bull that's always been part of the Rex crew. It's a, a live bull that was paraded around medieval France. Then at one point it was killed and eaten before Lent. And this is a tradition that was then integrated into the Mardi Gras parade. And a live bull used to stand on a float that would go down the street. Nowadays, it's paper mache. And that ended in 1901, having a live bull. So this is a live bull. And that's a really incredible footage to see. It's the only footage like that in the world. The Bouffe Gras. So this is a live bull um, on a float going down the street in New Orleans. Yes. <laughs> and I have no idea how they got it up there. <laughs> <laughs> or how it got back down. Oh, God, I have no idea. <laughs> <laughs> so one thing that stands out here, of course, this crowd sounds very well behaved. Nobody has to keep them back off the street. They're not mobbing the floats or anything. No safety whatsoever compared to what we're used to now. The other thing, nobody's throwing anything. We think of throws as a staple of Mardi Gras parades, but apparently it wasn't in 1898. Mackenzie, I'm wondering, what were your biggest takeaways from watching this film? We saw a quote from Will French. He said watching the film is like a hunt for a hundred little Easter eggs because each viewing reveals something new. Do you get that feeling from it? Were there any little Easter eggs that you discovered viewing this footage over and over again? Yeah, I guess because I've done Mardi Gras with my family and I don't think of it in the same way that I do in the footage because it's just so different from today. But then my knowledge of film and film history and what we're looking at for guess, historical presidents, it's not surprising that it's extremely different. Um, having gone back to New Orleans and I stood in the area where the float was coming down the street, I know that the buildings behind it have changed. And it's just really neat to see, I don't know how to explain it, um, the change of America in a way. And the change of Mardi Gras is just incredible to watch and to know the difference. We now have footage of something so old and now you can experience this today and know how far we've come not only in safety, but also in costumes and interaction. I feel like you're not really interacting so much here in the older footage, but nowadays it's a more interactive experience for Mardi Gras. This is film, you know, 120 some years ago, and it's bound to be some part of the history of New Orleans and Mardi Gras. Tell me, what's been the reaction about the discovery of this film? What have people said to you and how has the city of New Orleans responded? So it's been a very positive response. Um, I've gotten emails from colleagues and friends who were all really excited that the footage was found. But really, the big hoorah of everything was that it was brought into the National Film Registry. It's an incredible honor. And to have footage of my home state be honored in such a way is an incredible gift. And I'm so glad that I was able to help. And you mentioned a little bit of your reaction to being in the exact same location this film was shot of, the same corner, the same scene, and seeing what had changed. I don't know if anything was the same. Can you tell me like what you noticed changed? So I know looking in the back of the footage, you'll see the balconies on the building. That's no longer there. It was a little bit more difficult to figure out where it was for a long time. And the parade route is different than it was then. So it no longer goes on the street any longer. We've been speaking with Mackenzie Roberts Beasley, an audiovisual researcher and archivist for the Smithsonian Archives of American Art. Mackenzie, thank you for joining us today. Thank you so much. <laughs> 
From WRKF and WWNO, this is Louisiana Considered. I'm Adam Voss. Here at Louisiana Considered, we've discussed Mardi Gras celebrations from Mobile, Alabama to Cape Verde, Africa. But another place with a less thought of Mardi Gras history is Washington, D.C. Back in October, Capitol Park Museum in Baton Rouge unveiled an exhibit. It's called Carnival in the Nation's Capital, the Washington Mardi Gras Ball. This exhibit examined the annual event in D.C. and its similarities and differences to Mardi Gras in Louisiana. Radina Hart of the Capitol Park Museum joined us last fall to discuss the exhibition. Today, we listen to that conversation for a second time. So tell me, what was the genesis of the idea to have an exhibit about Mardi Gras, specifically the Mardi Gras in D.C.? Well, actually, this idea came from a while back. We started putting together some ideas about what would a Washington, D.C. Mardi Gras look like in Capitol Park Museum in Baton Rouge. How could we bring this exhibition to this new space and kind of, you know, pay it justice? And so we decided that we needed to look at its history, look at the way that it's evolved, and also some of its future. And, you know, 75 years ago in 1944, some homesick Louisianians decided that they would bring their favorite holiday to Washington. And from that point on, with few interruptions, there have been a Washington Mardi Gras whole three-day celebration. So Mardi Gras in Louisiana is one thing. How is Mardi Gras in Washington, D.C. different? Well, it really highlights everything that is special about Louisiana. So it's everything from Louisiana culture and agriculture. Uh, It's a, a way of promoting tourism and visitation to Louisiana. We know that the mystic crew of Louisianians, as they're now known, they at one point in time were the Louisiana State Society, and they were led by John H. Overton. Uh, He proposed a New Orleans-style ball in 1943, and in 1944, they were able to have the celebration. It's become more of a three-day celebration with parties, brunches, Uh, dinners, networking, uh, lots of formal balls, but really culminating to that one big ball where everyone gets to celebrate Louisiana culture. You mentioned homesick Louisianans starting the D.C. Mardi Gras. How do you think that celebration has changed over the decades from a time when maybe it was harder to travel back and forth between D.C. and Baton Rouge and be in contact where today we're all an easy proximity with electronic media and email? Mm-hmm. Well, you know, um, whenever our our homesick senators and, and other politicians, they were thinking about home, they were thinking, how can we bring a part of home here? And also, what are the things that make us so special? And historically, this had been a real Washington-based event. Lots of politicians from across the board had attended. But the more that this happens, the more Louisianians you're finding. Let's talk about the exhibit. Uh, What artifacts will we find there? Uh, I saw an old photo in 1953, I think, of then-Vice President Richard Nixon, Queen Dawn Marie Hebert, daughter of Congressman F. Edward Hebert, and King James A. Noe, former governor of Louisiana. 
So tell me about what we'll get to see there. Exactly. Uh, We've got beautiful costumes and we're able to look at what are the distinctions with their costumes? How do they present themselves? What makes them unique? We've got casework that highlights lieutenants, some that highlights the captains. We've got mantles that flow duple badges. So some of the dupes from these events. We've got the 1975 ball, which we highlight. We've got a big projection that you, it's like you're there uh, during that event. Uh, we highlight Roderick. Um, he created some really cool artwork and costuming when he was king. We have posters and invitations. We also have some of the artwork that the posters were made from because a lot of Louisiana artists throughout the years have created what physical things are there to commemorate these events. And so it's great to be able to highlight the artists and the product that comes from it. We're speaking with Rodnina Hart of Capitol Park Museum. We're talking about their exhibit, Carnival in the Nation's Capital, the Washington Mardi Gras Ball. It's about the Washington, D.C. Mardi Gras, Rodnina. What is it that makes this exhibit about Mardi Gras different from any other exhibit about Mardi Gras? Well, the way that we talk about our culture, if we're exporting it, if we are trying to bottle up all of the things that make us so unique and experience, how do we do that for an audience that is outside of Louisiana that may never have been to Louisiana to make them want to come here and spend their money here. Well, we are able to highlight our festival queens. We're able to highlight our industry, things like our seafood, our agriculture, our history, and our businesses and the things that really make us special. We are able to highlight things like the firsts, like John Bro bringing in Louisiana foods and musicians and, you know, chefs like Paul Perdome and John Foles, people who are just passionate about this state, are our go-to ambassadors of culture and history. Part of it sounds like it's Louisiana and Mardi Gras concentrated in a way. Precisely. Yes. Let's distill ourselves down to our essence. And it is good food, good friends, good fun. What do you hope that visitors will learn and take away? What experience do you hope that they'll take from the exhibit? Well, like many of our exhibitions, we hope that it's something that draws in people who are not from here and is a source of pride and celebration for those who are from here. We want to make sure that we're highlighting the things that are most important to what makes us special. And we also want to make sure that if your family is in town for the holidays, you bring them to Capitol Park Museum. You show them this concentrated space about our culture, including Mardi Gras, and then show them, and this is how we celebrate what really makes us special even if we have to be away from home. Rodnita Hart of the Capitol Park Museum, thank you for being here today. Oh, I'm always happy to come and chat with you. From WRKF in Baton Rouge and WWNO in New Orleans, this has been Louisiana Considered. I'm Adam Voss. 
Thanks to our guests and audiovisual researcher and archivist for the Smithsonian Archives of American Art, Mackenzie Roberts Beasley, and Rodnina Hart of the Capitol Park Museum in Baton Rouge. Our managing producer is Alana Shriver, and our digital editor is Caitlin Umholtz. Our engineers are Garrett Pittman and Aubrey Purcell. You can listen to Louisiana Considered Monday through Friday at noon and 7.30 p.m. It's available on Spotify, Google Play, and wherever you get your podcasts. Major support for Louisiana Considered provided by Rouse's Markets, a Louisiana shopping experience, with additional support from Tulane School of Public Health.